0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. It's been called the invisible pandemic. Millions of abuse victims are trapped by their abusers controlling behavior. And when they try to escape, the justice system too often dismisses their claims until it's too late.
1: I was up against this constant nagging or a barrage of negative comments about me or my loved ones or that he would always find fault in absolutely everything that I did. I did start to get very depressed. I got very anxious. I felt like I was walking on eggshells. And I would do anything to avoid a fight or avoid an issue regarding the children. But this was my life for a number of years.
0: I'm Sylvie Sturm, and this is Civic. Before we start today, I want to let you know that this episode discusses sensitive topics, including accounts of domestic abuse and violence. On average in the U.S., more than one in three women and one in four men will experience physical violence, rape, or stalking by an intimate partner, according to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. In San Francisco, the Department on the Status of Women reported in 2019 that crisis hotlines and 911 got more than 15,700 domestic violence-related calls over the previous year, and it only got worse during the pandemic. Lockdowns limited victims' ability to safely contact the outside world for help. The isolation increases the opportunity for abuse, aggression, and coercion. A study by the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice shows that domestic violence cases in the U.S. increased by over 8% following lockdown orders in 2020. That spike also hit San Francisco, according to a local nonprofit called Women Organized to Make Abuse Non-Existent, or Women Inc. The group reported that in 2020, its San Francisco Crisis Hotline got 11,000 calls and its Domestic Violence Information Referral Center website had 125,000 hits. During a public hearing at City Hall in May 2020, Beverly Upton, the San Francisco Domestic Violence Consortium Director, described the escalating problem.
2: The first couple of weeks, we saw Women, inks numbers alone go up 130 percent. So that was quite alarming. The first two weeks, it looks like people panicked. They did not feel safe. They weren't used to being kind of locked down with somebody that may have abused them in the past or that they were afraid of. So they reached out in record numbers. Those first few weeks we were looking at, a, for women, Inc., about 130 percent increase. Huge,
0: huge. Upton said that domestic violence sufferers often face dire circumstances when they leave their abusers. And without support, they may not be able to afford a place to live adding to a crisis that's already plaguing San Francisco.
2: Studies show us that domestic violence is one of the leading causes of homelessness for women and children, that people will leave their homes to try to keep their children safe. And so many women and parents in general end up homeless due to domestic violence.
0: The Biden administration responded to the pandemic-era rise in domestic violence in 2021 by investing nearly $1 billion from the American Rescue Plan into support services, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But while survivors of physical violence have gotten more support, help for survivors of a form of domestic abuse called coercive control is still lagging. Behaviors like isolating a spouse from friends and family, depriving them of basic needs, spying on them, sexual coercion, intimidation, repeatedly degrading and humiliating them, these are all examples of coercive control. In 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law that integrates coercive control into the state's Domestic Violence Prevention Act. Senate Bill 1141 expanded the Family Code to allow the abusive behavior to be used as evidence in family court hearings and criminal trials. It was meant to empower survivors trying to protect themselves and their children during appeals for restraining orders and child custody. But getting family court judges to embrace the new legislation has been slow going. That's what San Francisco public press reporter Viji Sundaram found during her reporting on coercive control.
3: I wrote about a woman named Kimberly, whose husband was working as a deputy sheriff in San Diego. He had a short temper, would use abusive language at her in front of the children she had from her first marriage. As her attorney said, she was constantly walking on eggshells. She didn't know when her husbands would flare up. She found this attorney, family law attorney, who told the judge about what she was going through, about how she had to constantly face abuse from morning till night. And the judge said, how can I believe her? How can I believe your client when she had a child with him? And how could she have stayed in an abusive situation for five years?
0: Viji recently published a series of articles on coercive control for the public press. You can read them online at sfpublicpress.org. The stories add to her extensive body of work on the issue of domestic abuse.
3: I've been a journalist for about 30 years in the United States. I've come from India. And I am very, very interested. I care deeply about women's rights issues because I've seen a lot of abuse not only among my friends, but I've seen it even in my family, not immediate family, but cousins and aunts. And I didn't, till I came here, I used to think, oh, that's okay, I guess, because it happens so frequently among my family members. But after coming here and learning more about domestic violence, I've become very aware of what's happening around me. And I decided I would write something about it. Her research
0: into the new California state law about coercive control led her to the man who pioneered the concept.
3: It was Evan Stark. He's a sociologist. He is the guy who actually began the conversation of coercive control in the world, starting in the U.S.
4: I've been doing this work for about 50 years.
0: Evan Stark has gained an international reputation for his innovative work on the legal, policy, and health dimensions of interpersonal violence. He's a sociologist, forensic social worker, and award-winning researcher. And he literally wrote the book on the topic. It's called Coercive Control, The Entrapment of Women in Personal Life. It was named the 2007 Outstanding Social Science Book by the Association of American Publishers.
4: Coercive control is a framework for the entire spectrum of behaviors that primarily men, but not only men, but partners are using to dominate the resource and take over and monopolize a particular space. They take the money, they take the sexuality, the time, they take the rights to privacy, they take all the other things that are available in that personal space and they keep it for themselves. Something like 25% of abusive relationships, we think, the violence is non-existent, too below the radar to show up, or doesn't begin until the woman is completely dominated. But in 75% of abusive relationships, the violence is present, but it is usually low level, and its significance derives from the factors I indicated that is frequent. It has a cumulative effect which is devastating over time of being subjugated, not that it is injurious. Of course, it may be injurious, but that's not significant. If you wait for injurious violence to get involved in of control, you miss 70% of the cases. By 2000, there was about a 30% drop in serious assaults against women and families. But Minor violence against women had increased so dramatically in that same period that overall level of the violence against women had not changed in over 60 years of policing and spending money on domestic violence. So the first thing you have to understand was that nothing was working. And the definition that we had of domestic violence, we thought was probably wrong. So that's what sent me back to the drawing board. So what we realized... It took us a long time. We couldn't learn this until the women in the refuges and the shelters started telling us these stories was that the typical physical violence that women were experiencing was not the assault that you see with a stranger, but what I call the death by a thousand cuts, the push, the shove, the grab, something that wouldn't impress a judge, wouldn't impress a police officer, but whose cumulative weight was such that it could lead to a feeling of being imprisoned, just the physical violence alone. So that was the first hint that domestic violence was not an adequate framework for responding to the abuse that women were experiencing. The other thing that I think would help you understand why course control, where it came from, what it means, is that the first woman we hid in our house, probably mid-70s sometime, told us when I asked her, Donna, tell me when did the violence start? She said, Evan, violence wasn't the worst part. And I had learned how difficult it was from the rape literature and working with women in sexual abuse situations before that it was very difficult to talk about violence. So I said, Donna, talk about the violence. When I came back and realized that it was the cumulative weight of the thousand pushes and shoves, the physical subjugation that was significant about abuse, not the injurious assault. It also came back to me that she was talking about something else that was going on. So it was at that point that we began to identify what became the coercive control framework, the psychological abuse, the intimidation, the sexual abuse, the isolation, the manipulation, what we call the control, the manipulation, the exploitation, all of the elements of financial abuse, all of the elements of subjugation that were being experienced by these women over the course of abusive relationships.
0: The lack of physical evidence often pushes domestic abuse into a gray zone that even survivors sometimes fail to grasp.
3: The course of control law is about a person dominating their partner, degrading them and frightening them, but there was no broken bones or black eyes, and so the women themselves were not 100% sure whether they were victims of coercive control. In fact, one woman told me when I was going to interview her, you know, I wish he had hit me, then I would have had a good reason to leave him, but these years and years of staying with him and being at the abusive end of it, I wasn't even sure whether I would have a good... The reason to leave him was I was doing the right thing.
0: Viji also spoke to a Bay Area woman we'll call Sarah. She said her partner used several tactics to control and manipulate her. Among them was refusing to make their marriage legal.
1: Even though we had a Hindu wedding ceremony in front of so many guests, spending at least 100K on the entire two day event. He refused to sign our marriage license. He stated that he didn't believe in such documents and that us being together would be enough. He does have my name tattooed on his back. He also made mention of that saying that, hey, you know, I'm with you for life. And, you know, this is just how it's going to be. At first, I was taken aback, but I was so much in the honeymoon stage. I kind of let it slide when I mentioned it to my parents. They did mention it to him. They did mention it to his parents and his parents basically assured all of us that things would be okay. And he just has a different way of looking at things. He has friends that have grown up here and maybe he's getting advice from them, but basically rest assured everything would be a-okay. They are married and that's that. Several years later push come to shove. When I did finally leave for the final time in March of 2021 with lawyers on board, it turns out I'm not married. Without that piece of paper, I'm not legally married. And it was shocking because looking back now, I felt like it was very calculated and it was a way for him to control me. And if I played nice, then, you know, that was something he dangled in front of my face. And if I wasn't playing so nice, that was also something he dangled in front of my face. You know, things are going good. You know, I definitely want to make sure we sign this document because he knew it how much it meant to me. But let's say things weren't going as well or... He was very particular in the way that the home was kept. He only wanted organic groceries to be bought. My purse had to be hung up by the door and nowhere else. I remember ordering a grilled cheese sandwich on a trip to Gurnsville with basically our family and my mom and dad and brother joined because our kids were so young to help out. I ordered a grilled cheese sandwich at a restaurant, a local restaurant. And for the next two days, I had to hear, why did you order that? You could make that at home for a fraction of the cost. If you're going to go out to eat, why not try something different? And so on and so forth. You know, I do see myself as a pretty easygoing, patient individual. But I think when I was up against this constant nagging or a barrage of negative comments about me or my loved ones or that he would always find fault in absolutely everything that I did. I did start to get very depressed. I got very anxious. I felt like I was walking on eggshells and I would do anything to avoid a fight or avoid an issue regarding the children. But this was my life for a number of years.
0: After she bore him a son, his anger and explosiveness intensified to the point where police were called.
1: After the first incident where my ex was taken to jail, I went back to live with my parents with our son so that I could get the help and support that I needed. And pretty soon, the fancy meals came, the beautiful flower arrangements, the I'm sorry's. And so we made it work. I got pregnant right away. And once again, so incredibly busy with a newborn and being pregnant and working. (laughs) I let a lot of stuff slide. I really did. I was just so busy with the day-to-day routines and trying to focus on being a good mom, I let a lot of things slide. But we tried again in our joint property when our daughter was born. And once again, within a few weeks, I ended up going back home to my parents with both children this time, because there were numerous issues and problems that arose after her birth. Because of their father's inability to help out, cooperate, play nice, get along with all the support and help that we had around in the home at the time. So once again, we were back home and he pretty much became a drop-in dad. He was focused on his career, on his life, on his friends, and he would come by when he wanted. Financially, my parents and I managed the show. We were paying for medical out-of-pocket. We were paying for home-based daycare out-of-pocket and absolutely anything and everything else you need to raise two young children.
0: And were your parents supportive of you cutting off ties with him?
1: So I think coming from an Indian background and pretty old-school parents, with old school values? Unfortunately, no. My dad actually told me on more than one occasion to make it work. He said that, you know, when he was young, he also had a hot temper. But as he grew up, as he matured, things settled down. And that, you know, mom and I, we don't fight anymore. You know, I know what my role is. She knows what her role is. And, you know, we were able to raise you know, the children and managed to live a decent life. I want you to do the same. I was confused because I knew I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel safe. I was always in a state of flux. I never had a real stability. But I think because of the advice I was getting, as well as my values I pretty much did absolutely everything I could to make it work. And so I stayed. I went back. And I went back multiple times.
0: Viji said that lack of support from family members is a common theme in South Asian communities.
3: This is a no-win situation for the woman. In fact, for the South Asian woman, in the South Asian community, marriage is a very sacred thing. And it's the woman's responsibility to make it work. If she leaves the husband, tongues will start wagging and say, oh, what did she do? Why did she leave him? Could she not have, you know, that's after all emotional abuse. So what? Emotional hardship. Why could she not have stayed with him? Many immigrant communities they have these additional things happening, even in the Afghan community. I interviewed a couple of women, but they later told me, don't use our story, so I dropped it. They face the same thing. The stigma, societal stigma is huge.
0: But this type of misogyny isn't limited to South Asian communities. It cuts across all races, religions, and classes. It can even victimize the most privileged women, like famous actress Evan Rachel Wood. In 2018, she testified before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, Homeland Security, and Investigations during a hearing on the rights of sexual assault survivors. Her testimony included a vivid description of an escalation from coercive control to physical violence that she suffered at the hands of her equally famous alleged abuser, musical performer Marilyn Manson.
5: I struggle to speak to you today because I'm not sure what words are appropriate when discussing this issue. However, if you can't hear the whole truth, you will never know true empathy. And I believe in the saying, if we have to live through it, then you should have to hear it. My experience with domestic violence was this. Toxic mental, physical, and sexual abuse, which started slow, but escalated over time, including threats against my life, severe gaslighting and brainwashing, waking up to the man that claimed to love me, raping what he believed to be my unconscious body. And the worst part, Sick rituals of binding me up by my hands and feet to be mentally and physically tortured until my abuser felt I had proven my love for them. In this moment, while I was tied up in being beaten and being told unspeakable things, I truly felt like I could die, not just because my abuser said to me, I could kill you right now, but because in that moment I felt like I left my body and I was too afraid to run, he would find me. I froze, and it was as if I could see myself from the outside, and for the first time in months, I felt something utter shame and despair. I had no idea what to do to change my situation, so I went numb, and soon I couldn't feel anything. I wasn't alive. My self-esteem and spirit were broken. I was deeply terrified, and that fear lives with me to this day.
0: Victims get the message from many directions that their abuse isn't a big deal. According to the Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Prevention Organization, No More, 65% of survivors who come forward report no one helping them when they do. They report that law enforcement treats their domestic abuse as a nuisance, a, quote, dispute, rather than an act of escalating violence. And when accusations do make it to court, the victim is often put on the defensive. They're required to face a person who has petrified them, threatened them, and stalked them. And then judges often choose to believe the denials of the accused rather than a detailed account of horrendous behavior. Viji heard an account of this experience from her source, Kimberly.
3: He kept telling her, how can I believe this? How can I believe that? And uh, her husband's attorney said she's not financially controlled as she says she is. She bought a BMW. Yes, Kimberly's her name, the woman who was abused. She did buy a BMW with her money, her salary. She was making fairly good money because she was a nurse at a hospital. So she did save up money and buy herself a car, and the judge used that against her, making her sound less than credible. The judge obviously had very limited knowledge about domestic violence, because research has shown that women not only stay in abusive relationships for various reasons, maybe they're financially unsound or they're scared of what society will think about them, Just because a woman is staying in an abusive situation, it doesn't mean she is not abused. And that is what the judge did not seem to understand. She was taking a restraining order and custody of the child. And the judge has given her 50-50 custody between her and her ex-husband.
0: And so has her case concluded?
3: Yep. The judge denied her the TRO on those grounds. The main ground was that she's had a child with this man and stayed with him for five years, so she could not have been abused. She lost the case, and she could have appealed. Kimberly knew she could have appealed her case within six months after the decision was handed down, but she told me, you know, I have spent $50,000 on this fighting my case. I can't afford any more. I can't afford to spend any more. I'm just going to let it go.
0: And so with lack of a restraining order, does that put Kimberly in a fear of danger?
3: I think it does. But, you know, and I asked her this. She said, I have to get on with my life. I cannot suspend everything, worrying whether this fellow will do something to me. She's just moved on.
0: Sarah also faced an obstinate and incredulous judge in her quest for a restraining order, even though her children's father had had his guns taken away on three separate occasions.
1: I want to say back in 2018 um, is when I got my first restraining order because we were all at my parents' house and my ex stopped over and wanted to take our son out. And I wasn't comfortable because of his behavior. I wasn't comfortable because of what had transpired between us before. And I also wasn't comfortable because he just had very little to no idea what he was doing with a baby or a toddler, I should say. And even though I expressed that to him, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And he ended up basically charging through my parents' house and breaking down the master bedroom door, literally breaking it off the hinges. The cops were called, and he was asked to leave. They asked the homeowner, my parents, if they would like to press charges, and they said no. They were trying to protect him, and he was their son-in-law. So that's pretty much what happened with that. We got the restraining order, and I think things were moving in a certain direction, but he kind of sweet-talked me sent flowers, sent food, shared pictures of us and the children together and basically tugged on my heartstrings. So I dropped it. I dropped the restraining order. And that's pretty much what happened with that. I think because that had happened, that became a credibility issue on my part, as far as the court see it. The second time I got a restraining order, He also, he got a basically a dueling restraining order, and he played the victim. He said, no, actually, I'm the victim. She's the abuser, even though he had no proof, even though I've never been to jail, even though I've never had guns revoked from the home three separate times. You know, I've never damaged property, cell phones, laptops, doors etc. The judge just found me not credible, which I thought was shocking. And it was almost as if he didn't care. He really didn't care to look at the facts. He didn't care to look at the history. One other part of this last case is he came in with strong lawyers and they were given the opportunity to focus on the length of the relationship, nine plus years, or focus on just the one year that we stayed under father's roof in Arinda. And they decided to just focus on that one year because they didn't want the fact that he had gone to jail to be brought up or the fact that he had damaged property or the fact that his guns were removed several times for safety reasons. One of his guns was modified and illegal, so he never got it back. It's very unfair, and I think that I'm not the only one. The more and more I read, the more I talk to other domestic violence survivors, I realize that this is just the system.
0: Without access to a restraining order, Sarah is on her own when
1: it comes to protecting herself. He does not know where we live. I've been very careful about disclosing my address. So he does not know where we live. He does not have access to that. And the schools and everyone that we are working with are also well aware of that. So, you know, I I am very much aware of the repercussions You do hear about those horror stories. And so I am taking all precautions. My neighbors know my situation. I've even given them a description of what he looks like and what to look for. So I hope nothing like that ever happens. But it's definitely something that I have thought about. I think most people do Mm -hmm. if you're in this type of relationship.
0: Sarah's experience in the courts has left her feeling dejected and cynical.
1: Lawyers are very, very expensive, and I feel like it's a game. Who tells the better story? Who has more money? Who can hire a better lawyer?
0: Time and time again, Viji encountered women who had to give up because they ran out of money.
3: Because of financial reasons, many women hesitate to even go to court they just suffer through this whole abuse. Or if they get out of the situation, they just don't file for a restraining order or custody of the children. Or if they do, then they're left bankrupt. Iris is an African-American woman, and that's not her real name. She did not want her real name to be used. She was involved with a guy for about, she describes it as all of 97 days during that time, she became pregnant. He made it clear to her that he wasn't going to help her in any way, shape, or form. But Iris was so financially insecure, she decided to stay on with, in that house with him and, you know, get whatever she could from him. But it was a very unhappy relationship. So after about five months, I think, she left him, and when she had the child, that guy came to her and said, I'm not signing the birth certificate. So this meant that he could always say when she wanted child support, why should I pay child support when that's not my baby? It became very complicated. So she had to hire lawyers after lawyers to help her. But that guy was so cunning, he engaged in what's called vexatious litigation, when they had a court date, he would not show up or he would do things in such a way that the court case was postponed. And she said during the last seven years, when she since she had the baby, she has been to court 80 times. Mm. And she's totally bankrupt because hiring attorneys is not cheap. Now she's learned enough, she says, about the law to represent herself in court. But still, she's going through a lot. He hires good attorneys to go after her. So she's in a bad spot.
0: Viji said some of the survivors she spoke to likened the experience in court to abuse itself. Some of them have given up on the system altogether. And some got that advice from their lawyer.
3: In Kimberly's case, for instance, she's not going back to the courts to appeal her thing. She says that will only lead to more abuse in the courts. Iris is convinced that coercive control law is not going to help her in any way. So she said one of her former attorneys told her, don't even bother to use the law, it's not going to get you any relief.
0: Like in Sarah and Kimberly's cases, victims are often disbelieved because they stayed with their abuser or even returned after a separation. What judges fail or refuse to understand are the pressures to stay that many victims face. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, most women will try to leave an abusive relationship on average five to seven times before they're successful. The reality is that many victims try to leave stealthily with extreme vigilance, so in many cases, onlookers mistake what they see as the victim choosing to stay with an abuser. I asked Evan Stark about the stubborn refusal to recognize that victims aren't lying about their abuse, they're struggling to leave. There's this threshold that people can't seem to get over, which is that the woman returned to her abuser for, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever it may be. How do you respond to people who just can't get over that threshold and accept that there is abuse there because the woman returns to the abuser?
4: You listeners have to understand, in abusive relationships, separation and getting back together are two stages Of the same ongoing coercive controlling relationship. The woman is calculating whether it's better and safer to be with him or without him, whether his promises are better to believe at a distance and disbelieve together or be separated. The average abusive relationship lasts for seven years. The average relationship goes back and forth three, four, five times. It's just as dangerous when he's not in the house as when he is. Separation and getting back together are strategies that women and men both have to continue or discontinue the abuse. They separate when they think it's safer, they get back together when they think it's safer. Not because they think the marriage is gonna work or not work, but because they think the strategies are more effective one way or the other.
0: And judges who don't get it right can make decisions that lead to the most tragic outcomes.
4: One of my clients here in Connecticut, we had her in a shelter in California with her three children. And the judge ordered her back to Connecticut. They'd been separated three or four times. The judge ordered her back to Connecticut for a family court hearing. We put her in our house. We had the police go over the house to search for him. We knew he was a danger to her, there was no sign of him, and the judge wanted her to show cause why he shouldn't get access to the children. She shouldn't return the children to California. So she came here to protest that, and he, he killed her. Look, you gotta understand, force control, it's not a domestic offense. It's a crime, and I'm trying to get that across. It's a crime that crosses social space. It occurs at the workplace. He's monitoring her while she's at the job. He has spies at the workplace. He's watching her workplace. I had a woman, a client of mine at ESPN, who ran over her husband in a car. And he was following her to work. He wouldn't let her go on trips, even though she was a sports reporter, without his permission. She had to come right home from work, so she couldn't go for late interviews. He had people watching her at work. I mean, it got to a point where she was actually made to live in a van, which he drove around. Even though he was a cameraman, he drove around so he could keep an eye on her all the time. It takes place at work. It takes place at school. It takes place at the gym. He's monitoring her exercise classes. He's monitoring her telephone. So. Coercive control, you can't think about it as a domestic offense. It's not about relationships. It's about controlling people's resources, controlling their sexuality, controlling their skill sets, controlling their work time.
0: A change in perspective reveals the deeply rooted injustice that has created the environment for abuse to thrive.
4: If men did to other men, or if women did to men in public, or if anybody did to men in public, The things that are done routinely to women and children in their household by husbands and fathers, there would be blood on the street Mm
1: -hmm. because
4: men would not stand for the kind of The only time men get any kind of indignities that women are experiencing and telling us about as routine in their homes is when men are in prison or men are in concentration camps or prison or war camps or under very extreme situations of stress. They would tell a man how to dress, how to clean himself, how to toilet himself, how to eat. These are the kinds of things we're talking about. Regulation of how people go about their daily lives, how they can spend their money, who they can talk to on the phone, how they can talk to their mother, how long they can go for a walk, whom they can see, how they should smile, how they should dress. If anyone did that to men. So 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when we first got into this, we weren't at a stage in thinking about women's rights, certainly not thinking about children's rights, where these things were considered indignities and where women were considered to have an honor to defend a value to their personhood that was at a level that was equal to men's. Now, course of control is a statement of harms that is predicated on the idea that women's right to equality is the same as the rights of other persons, that women's right to dignity, that women's right to being treated as a decent person with honor and respect and truthfulness is the same, and the right to money, the right to education is the same as anyone else's. And the reason abortion control is so important now is because this is probably the most important time in history for women to use personal life as a space where they do something other than perform housework as a space where they can prepare themselves for the new opportunities that our society and our economy is making available, not only making available, but which are necessary in order for the society to grow and the world to grow its society in the way that we need to grow in the next century. So in order for that to happen, Women have to have a personal space in which they can breathe the air of a free people. And that's what coercive control is about.
0: Some abusers who lose control over their victim will go to extremes to hurt them, even if it means killing their own children. Since 2008, 848 children have been murdered by separating or divorcing parents in the United States. In our next episode, we'll hear about national and international laws meant to protect survivors of coercive control. And we'll hear the tragic story of a little boy in Southern California whose murder at the hands of his father inspired a proposed law in his name.
2: On April 21st, my ex-husband suffocated my son in the backseat of his vehicle while he slept, strapped in his car seat after a day-long trip to Disneyland.
0: If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, help is available. I'm going to give you some phone numbers that will also be posted with the article associated with this episode of Civic on sfpublicpress.org. The National Domestic Violence Hotline provides confidential assistance to anyone affected by domestic violence through a live chat and a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-799-7233. The National Dating Abuse Helpline, a project of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, can be reached at 1-866-331-9474 or by texting LOVEIS to 77054 or through a live chat at loveisrespect.org. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced by KSFP-LP, a project of the San Francisco Public Press. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who's also program director for KSFP. Lila LaHood is the publisher of The Public Press. Michael Stoll is our executive director. Lisa Rudman is our development director. John Dillon created our theme music. Thanks for listening.